Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and I'm a certified holistic health and nutrition coach, and we're broadcasting live worldwide from Malibu, California. This afternoon, I'm interviewing Laura Adler. She's a fellow IIN Institute for Integrative Nutrition graduate, and she's a toxins expert who informs parents about protecting their children and trains uh, other health professionals how to inform their clients about toxins. And this is a really important show because we're going to be talking about chemicals that are making you fat. And these chemicals are called obesogens, and they promote obesity in a number of ways that may alarm you. And our guest today is going to tell you where they lurk and what you can do to avoid them. But before we get started, I have to do a little disclaimer. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition. This podcast is solely informational in nature and is not intended to diagnose, cure, or heal any disease. Please consult your healthcare practitioner before attempting in any treatment we suggest on this show. And please go check out my website, LiveTo110.com. I've started a site to educate you about paleo nutrition and the importance of detoxing from heavy metals and industrial chemicals that I believe are the major underlying cause of disease. And my goal is with the site is to help you prevent disease and live a long, healthy life. And if you like what you hear on today's show, please give the Live to 110 podcast a nice review and rating in iTunes. Uh, this will help people from around the world to find the show easier and get my word out on health. And I would appreciate it so much. So today's show um, is so important because it seems that Americans and people all over the world are living uh, in an obesogenic environment. Chemicals and toxins in our air, food, water, and beauty products are promoting the obesity epidemic and making it easy to gain weight and hard to lose it. So I wanted to get a toxins expert on the show to tell us how to avoid these often overlooked causes of weight gain. So good afternoon, Laura. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Um, so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to focus on toxins? Sure. Uh, you know, I've always been interested in health and wellness since I was really in my early teens, um, but I didn't pursue work in this field until about five years ago. Um, I had previously been working in corporate sales, didn't really speak too much to this interest and passion that I had uh, sort of secretly uh, brewing underneath on food and nutrition and health. So I just sort of up and quit my job, um, really seeking something that fit me and fulfilled me in a bigger, deeper, and, and more impactful way than corporate sales. Uh, and I stumbled onto the holistic health coaching uh, field, and I, in that I saw an opportunity to create a cre career that supported this sort of, like I, I like to call an inner nutrition nerd, um, and allowed me to sort of do work that's more fulfilling. So I went back to school, I got my certification, and I started seeing clients right away. Now, most of the clients that were coming to me were coming to me for weight loss. And I had some clients that would be getting, you know, amazing, fantastic results, and, and other ones that were having really meager results, meaning that um, even though they were sort of doing everything that I knew to get them on the path to weight loss, something just really wasn't budging. And I just, it really baffled me. Um, and frustrated me. Uh, all of the traditional and many of the non-traditional stones, as I like to call them, were turned over. So things like diet and exercise, stress, sleep, emotional eating, like you name it, I turned all of those stones over, but still something wasn't working. So I started to do uh, a bunch of research into the lesser-known causes of weight gain and resistant weight loss. And what I found in doing this research ultimately changed the entire focus of my practice. And I learned through this research that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of chemicals that we are exposed to on a daily basis just through living a normal everyday lives that contribute in so many different ways to the obesity epidemic and growing rates of metabolic diseases, not to mention things like cancer, thyroid problems, infertility, birth defects, things like ADHD, 
um, behavioral and developmental disorders, autism, the list was really, really long. And I really got completely hooked. I couldn't stop researching. I dove headfirst into this world of environmental chemical toxicity and spent the past few years learning as much as I could in, uh, about this. Sort of, it's a very newly um, emerging field that's still really in its infancy. Uh, and in talking to people, uh, friends, family, clients, colleagues, I quickly saw that this was a conversation um, that was happening within the academic, scientific communities, but it wasn't really happening um, within the mainstream conversation yet. And most people didn't know about chemical toxicity or what they knew was more old school in thinking, uh, for example, that the only people at risk for chemical exposures were people working in factories or other types of occupational exposures. Uh, but they didn't understand how these everyday chemicals have the ability to impact health in both subtle and in uh, profound ways. And most importantly, they had no idea what to do to protect themselves or reduce exposures to these chemicals uh, in the first place. And this is really where I saw um, a hole that needed filling. So I turned my attention to distilling all of the research that I was finding into simple, easy, and actionable steps that people could take to reduce their exposure to these chemicals. Um, and I really do consider environmental toxins to be the biggest missing piece of the conversation around health and wellness in general, whether it's obesity and diabetes, which is obviously the focus for today, but also things like thyroid disorders and attention deficit disorder, um, cancers, leukemias, heart disease, you name it. Toxins really do touch um, everything and everyone. And so now the entirety of my practice is focused on uh, educating both health and wellness practitioners about this issue as well as working directly with parents um, around these issues and helping them navigate, uh, you know, what's currently in their home and how to create a safer home environment for themselves and for their children. Yeah, and I absolutely agree with you. I think toxins and industrial chemicals are one of the biggest threats to our health and our waistline, and that's why I've made LiveTo110.com. That's a big focus on the site because it's so important. People need to be talking about it more. And you're a, an environmental toxins expert. Uh, can you explain for everyone what you mean by environmental toxins? Yeah, you know, I think that perspective is really important here. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of context. Context, I think, helps establish all information. A lot of people out there uh, on the Internet say content is king. I actually think context is king because otherwise without context your content has no place to land. So the context here is um, going to help frame up the rest of our conversation. So you know before I dive into what I call the quote-unquote chemical landscape, I want to clarify what I mean by the term environmental toxins. So most people when they hear that phrase environmental toxins they think of air pollution and soil pollution and water pollution, oil spills, stuff like that, stuff that's sort of out there and stuff that we don't have too much control over. I, as an individual, can't really do too much about a big oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. But that's actually not what I'm referring to at all, although those certainly are significant and important things to consider within the uh, conversation. What I'm talking about uh, are the toxins that are in your personal environment, the things that you bring into your home and put onto your body or into your body. Now, most people don't realize that they're bringing toxins or chemicals that can be harmful into their home because these chemicals sort of sneakily piggyback on the products that we're using every day. So things like your shampoo and the packaging that your food comes in, um, they're often on our food uh, uh, itself. Uh, they're coming in through household cleaners, on your dry cleaned clothes, it's coming in on the soles of your shoes, it's in your carpeting and your furniture and the paint on your walls. So there's tough 
toxins that sort of surround us. Now, over the past 50 years or so, there's been an absolute flood of synthetic chemicals that have been developed and introduced into the marketplace, with more and more being added each year. Right now, we're clocking in at about 84,000 chemicals uh, in use, and one to 2,000 are, are added every year on top of that. Now, not all of these chemicals are bad. Some of these chemicals have definitely benefited us. They've provided new medications and building materials, things that really have made our lives easier and better and safer and even longer. But the problem here is that the vast majority of these chemicals have little to no safety testing data, meaning that nobody, no government agency, has bothered to see whether these chemicals are harmful to human health before putting them into the products that you and I are using every day, or maybe not you and I, but that other people are using every day. Um, and there's very little government oversight around the use of chemicals in consumer products. And you, you would think that there would be, but sadly there isn't. Um, the Toxic Substances Control Act, which is really the only piece of legislation that we have uh, to address chemicals in commerce, uh, is the only piece of environmental legislation that has not been updated ever um, since it was created in 1976. It is sorely outdated and sorely in need of reform. And there's, um, you know, that's on the docket now, but like all things in government, um, I don't see it until it's signed and done. And even then I kind of hold my breath for a little while. So, um, the reality is that the products that we're using have not been tested. The ingredients have not been tested. And the Centers for Disease Control, of CDC, uh, tests routinely or has started to test routinely for traces of these chemicals uh, inside the body of Americans. These are referred to as body burden tests. And they have found more than 200 different synthetic man-made chemicals in the bodies of people tested. Some of these chemicals, um, some of which I'm gonna talk about today, are found in almost 98% of people tested, meaning like everybody's got this stuff floating around in their systems. Um, the Environmental Working Group did a study a number of years ago where they tested the blood of um, newborn babies. They tested umbilical cord blood and found that babies are being pre-polluted with so many of these industrial chemicals, things like flame retardants and pesticides, um, jet fuel, uh, dry cleaning solvents that are found within the cord blood of newborn babies. So this is a big, big issue. And it's a big issue because it turns out that uh, many of these chemicals have the ability to influence the way that our metabolism works, um, and through messing with that and with other systems can lead to things like weight gain and insulin resistance and diabetes among, as I said earlier, a whole list of other health conditions that are unrelated to the weight topic. So if we look at the sort of from a historical standpoint and we look at the arc of the introduction of chemicals into the marketplace, which really started after World War II when this better living through chemistry lifestyle was adopted, we can see that it closely mirrors the arc of disease that we experience in this country. So rates of cancer, diabetes, learning disabilities, behavioral problems, autism, childhood leukemia, infertility, birth defects, these are all conditions that are actually on the rise, they're increasing. Despite the increase in medications and our advanced understanding of health and disease and disease prevention. And so studies are showing more and more every day that chemicals we encounter in our normal lives are linked or associated with each of those conditions that I just mentioned and a whole slew of others. And this same arc of chemical use also mirrors the rise of overweight and obesity in this country. So there's a lot of parallels there. Yeah, ex absolutely. I agree. So what, what role do you see chemicals playing in the increasing rates of overweight and obesity? Well, it seems likely that it's one of the key players right up there with uh, poor diet and lack of exercise. 
Um, and in fact, I see these three things, uh, poor diet, lack of physical exercise or not enough or appropriate physical exercise, and chemical exposures as this sort of perfect storm of three things that all sort of happened within the last, um, you know, 50 years or so, 50, 60 years, that have all sort of converged to lead us to the kind of obesity statistics that we have today. Um, and I'll go into some of those statistics now, just again, to frame up and put a little bit of context to this conversation. So right now, a full 35% of our population, and that's, these are United States statistics, so a full 35% of our population medically qualifies as obese, and usually that's defined as a BMI over 30%, uh, body mass index. Now, this is up to, uh, from 13% 50 years ago. So 50 years ago, only 13% of our population qualified as uh, medically obese, and now we're up to 35%. That's a huge, huge jump in a short amount of time. Since 1980, we've seen rates of childhood obesity nearly triple. And these are just the numbers of people who, who qualify as being clinically obese. And there are millions more, another 34% of our population, who are diagnosed as, quote, unquote, overweight. Now, this means, combine those two numbers, that over 70% of our entire population is struggling with weight issues that did not exist on this scale 30 years ago. There's a huge increase um, in, in numbers in a really short amount of time. Now, conventional thinking around weight management has always hovered around the first two things that I mentioned, diet and exercise. This is where the whole calories in, calories out model um, that we're now understanding more and more isn't really accurate. Um, there's far more going on than just energy intake and energy expenditure. And this really brings me to the entire purpose of our call today, and that's obesogens and their role in, in this. Yeah, what exactly are obesogens? Well, uh, obesogens are chemicals that directly or indirectly increase obesity through the disruption of metabolic, hormonal, or developmental processes. So these are chemicals that have the ability to alter fat cell development. They can alter metabolism, and they can promote fat retention. So for somebody who's, you know, got those last five or 10 pounds that they just absolutely can't seem to budge no matter what, it could be because chemicals are actually promoting the retention of that fat. It's telling your body and programming your body to hold on to that, um, and sometimes for a uh, very important reason. Now, the term obesogen is a relatively new term. It was coined by somebody named Dr. Bruce Blumberg, who is the professor of development in cell biology at UC Irvine. Um, and this term was coined back in 2006. So it's really only been sort of floating around there for uh, a few years. Now the idea though that chemicals in our environment could be contributing to the obesity epidemic goes back a few years prior to that, back to 2002, uh, when a research paper by somebody named uh, Dr. Paula Bailey Hamilton showed evidence that, uh, or she basically looked at toxicological studies dating back as far as the 1970s that showed that low-dose chemical exposures, and I'll talk about um, low doses and what that means and what the implications are um, in a little in a few minutes, um, that low-dose chemical exposures were associated with weight gain in the animals used in those experiments. So because this is sort of a relatively new discovery, um, and I say relative as in the span of scientific research, going back to 2002, relatively short, um, you know, so because this has really only begun to take off in the last six, seven, eight years, it's, it's research is still in its infancy. There's a tremendous amount of research happening in this field, but there's still a lot of questions. 
to be answered. Um, and although there are likely many, many, many more, there are currently 20 chemicals that have been identified as being obesogens. These are things like nicotine. Nicotine is an obesogen. Um, I don't imagine that you have too many smokers on a podcast called Live to 110, <laughs> but nicotine, nicotine is for sure one of those um, obesogens. Uh, things like MSG, monosodium glutamate. Lots of people are avoiding that for other reasons, but it's a good reason to avoid it because it's also an obesogen. Uh, chemicals like arsenic, or elements, I should say, like arsenic, which is found in uh, drinking water. And, you know, for people who watched uh, Dr. Oz, there was a big uh, arsenic scare uproar uh, in apple juice. Uh, and also recently in rice, there's high levels of arsenic found in rice. These are things that we should be aware of. Um, chemicals like atrazine. Atrazine is a pesticide. It's one of the most widely used herbicides in this country um, and uh, is found uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, I think, is um, measured atrazine levels in 94% of drinking water tested. So this is also something to be concerned by. Uh, DDT is another uh, classified obesogen. DDT is a pesticide that was banned long ago, but breakdown products of DDT can still be found um, even in the cord blood of newborn babies born today, despite this chemical being banned 30 or so years ago. Uh, fructose. Fructose is another uh, obesogen. This is part of uh, the reason why high fructose corn syrup is being implicated in the obesity and overweight epidemic um, because of the way that the fructose interacts within the body. Um, parabens. Parabens are another one. These are chemicals that are used as preservatives within a lot of the personal care products that we're using, also an obesogen. And even some pharmaceuticals are obesogens. Um, I'm sure, uh, Wendy, that you've heard stories of people who were put on some type of prescription medication that had the side effect of weight gain. Most people know somebody or have experienced that themselves. Um, things like clozapine, which is, um, I think that's usually used to treat schizophrenia and some off-label uses for bipolar disorders, um, it's well-known for causing weight gain in a significant number of the people who take it. Uh, antidepressants, antipsychotics, and even really common over-the-counter medications like Prevacid and Nexium. Um, actually, I believe those are, I'm not sure where they stand on over-the-counter versus prescription on those. Um, but Prevacid and Nexium can all trigger weight gain in people. And these are obesogens. These are obesogens. We've actually been aware of the ability of chemicals, in this case pharmaceuticals, to cause weight gain, we've actually known about this for a long time. Um, but as you can gather from that list of identified obesogens, it's not just pharmaceuticals. It's the nicotine, MSG, pesticides, atrazine, DDT, and chemicals added to consumer products. So things like phthalates, which I'll talk about later. Um, and parabens and BPA, which I'll also talk about later. So it's just sort of a wide range of, um, of chemicals that are able to interfere with our metabolism in this way. Yeah, well, can you just clarify for the listeners, uh, how exactly are these chemicals linked to weight gain and obesity, and uh, what, what makes them obesogens? Um, well, I, I will do my best to do that. Um, I will say that the science is, because this research is still in its infancy, there's still a lot of questions um, as to the exact mechanism, meaning what is actually happening within the body to have this effect. Uh, these chemicals, the ones that I just listed, are classified as obesogens because they know that uh, exposure to these chemicals or these uh, toxicants can result in weight gain and Research has been exploring um, what is the pathway, meaning what's actually happening in the body to cause that. And in some cases, we're very clear on what's happening. And in other cases, 
we don't have all the information yet. We don't know. We only know that it does happen. So, um, but, but in a basic sense, there are a few different ways that these chemicals that we're aware of so far have the ability to have these effects. And different chemicals can act within the body differently. And some chemicals can act in multiple ways within the body, all with the same result. So you've got some chemicals that are going to trigger one thing to happen that can lead to obesity or weight gain. And then you've got other chemicals that can actually cause a number of things to happen, each one of those things independently causing um, obesity and weight gain, and those ones seem especially troubling to me. Um, so some of the ways, there are a number of different routes that, again, can all have the same outcome. Uh, weight gain, insulin resistance, diabetes, ultimately leading to obesity. Um, but basically speaking, here are the few of the ways, and I'll nerd out a little bit here, um, and I hope that everybody can stick with me on this. Um, one, one of the ways is that they can activate something in the body called the PPR gamma receptor. PPR gamma receptor is this master regulator of fat cell development in the body. So just think about it like it's a mass, the master thermostat that regulates, regulates fat within the body. Now, things that activate this receptor in many cases can actually change the way that our fat cells are programmed. So in our body, we have stem cells, and these stem cells um, in, in pre-development can turn into any different kind of cell. So it could be a kidney cell, a liver cell, a skin cell, a hair cell, whatever. It can be anything that it, it, it needs to be or wants to be. Activation of this PPR gamma receptor can actually change the programming of a cell in pre-development, and it can program it to become a fat cell rather than, say, a bone cell or a skin cell or a liver cell that it was intended to become. So what this actually does is increase the number, the actual number of fat cells within the body. If we, and that's all happening within pre-development of the cell. If we're looking at cells that are already developed, activation of that PPR gamma receptor can increase the amount of fat, the amount of lipids that are stored within each fat cell making it physically larger. And some of the uh, obesogenic chemicals work by activating this receptor um, in the same way that pharmaceuticals do. So this PPAR, um, PPR gamma receptor activation is the pathway that many of those pharmaceuticals like the clozapine and Avandia, um, uh, I didn't mention Avandia, but clozapine, um, Prevacid, Nexium, they often work on that pathway. So they're activating that PPR gamma receptor, and they're causing fat cells to become more in number and larger in size. And many of the obesogenic chemicals um, that I mentioned are able to also work in that same capacity. And you can see here, this has nothing to do with calories or exercise, nothing to do with calories or ex exercise. This is weight gain that's happening on a cellular level completely devoid of what you're eating and how much you're exercising. So this is, this is why I think this is such a fascinating and important topic to discuss and to bring to everybody's attention. So um, uh, here's another way that obesogenic chemicals can work. Many of the obesogenic chemicals that are out there are known as endocrine-disrupting chemicals, uh, often abbreviated as EDCs. Now, these are chemicals that are capable of blocking or mimicking the role of natural hormones, um, in many cases estrogen, within the body. Now, our hormonal system, for those, and I don't know if you've touched on hormonal uh, the hormonal system on your show or not before, but the hormonal system works in a sort of a lock and key fashion. So we have what are called hormone receptors in our body, and these act as little locks. And hormones, free-floating hormones throughout the body, come along and act as keys and open those locks, which in turn release other hormones or signals within the body to have some type of effect. Uh, now, chemicals 
can masquerade as hormones and slip in and disrupt the normal processes of this body. So they're coming in and sort of masquerading as these natural hormones that are floating around in the body, and they're unlocking locks left and right that otherwise would not have been unlocked. Uh, many of the chemicals, particularly the obesogenic ones, are synthetic estrogens. And having these synthetic estrogens floating around your system can lead to all kinds of health effects beyond just weight gain and obesity. So it's important to get a handle on um, excess estrogen uh, in the body in general, regardless of the weight conversation. Um, estrogen dominance is something that a significant portion of the population is struggling with, and they don't even realize it. Yeah, I'm struggling with that right now, too. I've written quite a bit yeah. about that. Website, that estrogen dominance yeah, causes so many health problems. So many health problems and so many women and men don't recognize that it's, it's something that they're, that's happening. And, you know, you have to pause, take pause and ask, you know, what's happening that's causing this? Um, why... Why is there such a boost and increase in um, estrogen dominance? And it very easily could be, or at least in part be, because so many of the chemicals that we're exposed to in our daily lives are able to mimic estrogen. Um, and so that sort of is a logical um, uh, connection to make. So some of the obesogens out there are also linked directly to things like insulin resistance. And insulin, as we know, is the primary regulator of how our body stores fat. And when insulin levels are elevated, we accumulate fat. So chemicals that interfere there um, are most certainly not ones that we want to uh, be bringing directly into our homes and allowing into our bodies. It's just not fair. The odds are so stacked against us. Uh, but can you give us a few specific examples of chemicals in our everyday lives that are obesogens and, you know, where we might find them? And then once we identify them, how do we avoid them? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that, um, you know, everything that I set up, up until now might seem a little bit of, a little bit abstract and, and not very practical or actionable. So I definitely want to provide some actionable uh, steps for people to take and so they can really go into their homes and start looking at the things that they're bringing in and make some changes to the reduced exposures and that's sort of the whole point here. So uh, some of the most common obesogens that we encounter in our lives are uh, phthalates and I'll go into those in a moment, BPA and pesticides and I'll go through each one of those and offer a few suggestions on how to start reducing exposure. Now I'll preface all of this by saying that we cannot avoid all exposures, right? This is impossible. If we live on planet Earth, we are exposed. The chemicals in our environment are ubiquitous. They are found on every corner of the globe. They travel through wind. They travel through air. Um, and, of course, because we have a global marketplace, they're traveling through, um, you know, piggybacking again on these products that we're, we're purchasing and shipping all over the world. Um, polar bears in the Arctic have things like flame retardants in their blood. This is just an example of how ubiquitous chemical exposure is. But the fact that chemicals are all around us does not mean that we throw up our arms in defeat without making any effort. Because, and I get a lot of people who say, like, oh, everything gives you cancer, and those kind of people sort of give up before even making um, any effort. And you know, the truth is that there are a lot of things that we can do to reduce our exposure. Um, you know, a significant number of exposures are happening inside the home. And while we can't control things that we're exposed to out in the world, you know, like I said, I don't have, as an individual, there's not a whole lot that I can do about an oil spill in the Gulf, but I have 100% control over the products that I buy that I bring into my home. And um, this is where we focus our energy. So the saying that I like to use, this is actually the tagline for my business, is we change the things that we can control so we worry less about the ones that we can't. Because there's a ton out there that we can technically worry about, 
but I don't want to be that person that freaks out and is so hyper paranoid about everything. Um, I actually have a name for this. I call people who are super hyper fixated on avoiding toxic chemicals as being detoxorectic, um, sort of an inside joke. Um, I love that because I used to be detoxorectic. When you first start reading about toxins in your environment and plastics and perfumes or toxins like in this and then all your shampoos you've been using since you were 10 years old, it, you, it, I got really, really paranoid and started doing, just went crazy with it and like ran away from people smoking and, you know, all kinds of things like that. But I think that's a really, really good point to make. Yeah, you know, and I think that that's unfortunately or fortunately, it's a really common reaction to have is that complete moment of freak out. And, you know, I I, I always uh, talk to the coaches and the health practitioners and parents that I work with about navigating that because, you know, we want to have um, as much as possible a sense of normalcy in our lives. We don't want to be so paranoid and upset that, you know, we don't let our kids go over to, you know, to, to play soccer because we know that the field has pesticides on it and we keep them trapped inside and, you know, you can't live in a bubble. And sort of my really bad joke that I like to tell uh, or that I like to say about this is, you know, people always say, like, oh, I just want to live in a big plastic bubble. But me, I go, well, you know, kind of plastic is it? And there's plastic off-gassing and... Um, <laughs> <laughs> because that's that's my joke. I'm glad that you laughed because not everybody thinks that's funny. <laughs> I totally get it. <laughs> okay, good, good. So anyway, the point is that, you know, we don't get hyper-obsessed and freak out about everything um, because the reality is that we live on planet Earth and I'm not going to get, I'm not going to never walk down the sidewalk because there's cars spewing exhaust. That's just ridiculous. So instead of freaking out about that, I'm going to let that stuff go, and I'm going to worry about the things that I bring into my home and um, make changes there and focus my energy there. And once those are taken care of, then, you know, I'm good. I'm comfortable. I'm not really stressing out about stuff uh, because I've done everything that I can that's within within my reach. So Yeah, I feel, um, I feel the same way, too, because even though I'm constantly exposed, the rest of our lives will be constantly bombarded with toxins. But I have peace of mind because I do a nutritional balancing program that's a detox program, and I do an infrared sauna a few times a week, and I detox all these chemicals out that I'm ingesting on a daily basis. So I yep. I don't work about it now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that's the best approach. So anyway, let's get into the, the nitty-grit. So the first chemical that I'll talk about um, and share with everybody isn't actually one chemical, but rather a class of chemicals. And these are called phthalates, and that is spelled, I'll spell it for everybody, it's spelled P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S, and it's pronounced phthalates, like T-H-A-L-L. Um, that's always a tricky one. When people first see that word, they just say, oh, I don't know how to say that. Too many consonants right up against each other. But it's pronounced phthalates. And phthalates are asynthetic estrogen or act as synthetic estrogens in the body. Again, capable of blocking or mimicking natural estrogen uh, within the body. Now, phthalates are used in a few different ways and found in a wide variety of products, which is why it's one of the most uh, important ones to address. Um, it's found in a wide variety of plastics, in particular plastics that are flexible and bendy, so if we think of things like our rubber ducky toy, uh, kids' toys and other plastic toys, if we think of things like shower curtains and garden hoses, these are flexible, bendy plastics. Um, phthalates are a plasticizer uh, used for making plastics soft and flexible. Uh, it's also used in thousands of household products from things like laundry detergent to dish soap, uh, to things like candles and air fresheners, to perfume, body lotion, shampoos, dryer sheets, aftershave. Basically, if it's fragranced or has any fragrance added to it, it very likely has phthalates in it. Now, the reason why your clothes smell like detergent or dryer sheets hours or days, even weeks after you've washed them, and the reason why you can still smell the shampoo that you washed your hair with in the morning at 10 o'clock at night is because phthalates are present in the product. 
Now, the role that phthalates play in these type of products is that they fix and hold scent to fabric, to skin, to hair, um, and that is why they're there. Now, phthalates are so ubiquitous that they are found in the blood. It's 98% uh, or urine of 98% of people tested by the CDC. Now, studies have shown that measurable levels of phthalates in the urine are associated with increased weight circumference, that's belly fat, and insulin resistance. Now, it's not entirely known the exact mechanism. As I said earlier, there's still a lot of questions. It's not exactly clear what the mechanism by which phthalates act as obesogens, but it's likely due to the fact that Again, they're interfering with our hormonal system, and in particular with thyroid function, which itself can be responsible for fluctuations and in, in managing of weight. Now, it's worth noting that studies are showing that weight associated with um, these chemicals tend to occur at low levels of exposure, not high doses. This is often um, something that the question that comes up, and this is significant because through living our normal everyday lives, we're not exposed to big industrial occupational type doses. We're exposed to really teeny tiny doses, very small doses from a variety of sources. All of those products that I just mentioned, you're probably not using one. You're probably not only using laundry detergent or only scented candles. You're probably using laundry detergent and shampoo and soap and deodorant and perfume and makeup that has fragrance, um, shaving cream, scented candles, air fresheners, laundry detergent, dryer sheets, you name it, cleaning products. So you're getting exposures from all of these different sources, and these can add up inside the body to levels that are capable of having a real impact. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that there's been no studies, nor will there ever really be any uh, studies, about the synergistic effects of all right. these cumulative chemicals and their effects on your body. So, you know, you definitely got to... Uh, and no, I mean, and that's a really good point. So what, what um, you know, Wendy mentioned is that, you know, these chemicals are tested when they are tested, which is few and far between. Um, and the testing for uh, safety is um, inadequate, they're tested in isolation. So they're tested one chemical at a time. But the truth is there's not just one chemical in any single product that you're using, and you're also using, like I said, dozens of products every single day, and there is no way to do a adequate and, and well-thought-out uh, scientific study as to what is the, the impact of all of these chemicals uh, combining within the body. This is actually referred to as the cocktail effect. What happens when we mix them? We don't know. Um, so no. there's a lot of question marks there. Um, so that's a, a good point that you brought up. Well, can you explain this low-dose thing to us? Like Logically, it makes sense that bigger exposures would be worse for us, but, but that seems not to be the case with many of these chemicals. Uh, yeah, I mean, so here's the common line of thinking when looking at chemical exposures, and that's to assume that more chemical equals more reaction or more disease, uh, meaning that large doses or large exposures are worse than smaller ones. Um, this is the uh, this concept is referred to as the dose makes the poison. And in fact, the entire field of toxicologic research is built upon the idea that the dose makes the poison, that bigger doses equal bigger impacts. So all of those toxicity studies that we're basing, that you know, product manufacturers are basing the quote-unquote relative safety of their products um, are based on that type of research. Uh, dose makes the poison, um, something uh, called monotonic dose response curve, not, not a little nerdy. Not necessary to know that, but um, so the entire field of toxicologic research is really built on this idea, but research is starting to show that this is actually not always true. Now, it's been well established that our bodies are designed to respond to tiny infinitesimal levels of some chemicals within the body. The entire field of pharmacology 
is based on this. Now, if you think of pres prescription drugs that are bioactive, meaning they actually have an effect within the body, you're not getting a massive occupational biohazard toxic waste dump size exposure to that chemical. You're taking a little pill that delivers uh, medication in a parts per million, parts per billion dosage. Um, and that's incredibly tiny. So to give you some perspective on what that means, this part per billion conversation, is that one part per billion is equal to just over one teaspoon diluted in a 600,000-gallon Olympic-sized swimming pool. Many prescription drugs are delivered at fractions of that teaspoon, at fractions of parts per billion. So if we look at birth control, for example, which we all know is bioactive, meaning it actually, it actually um, has an effect on our body. That's why we take it or why some people take it, um, and which, by the way, often has a side effect of weight gain. Um, a single dose of the most commonly prescribed birth control, uh, which is NuvaRing, is delivered at 0.035 parts per billion. That's so small, much, much less than that tiny teaspoon, so very small doses. So research is showing that, it, that when it comes specifically to these endocrine-disrupting chemicals, the ones that can mimic or block estrogen, or that really can interfere with any of the other hormones in the body, less is actually more. So what I mean by that is a very small doses are showing to have a significant impact at levels that had previously been assumed to be safe. And they were previously assumed to be safe because they were looking at it through that lens um, of toxicologic research, meaning uh, the dose makes the poison. Now, the entire field of endocrinology, which is the study of your hormonal system, your endocrine system, has always understood that our hormonal system is designed to respond to infinitesimal levels of hormone in the body. So it's especially worrying that the chemicals that we're most commonly exposed to are these low-dose hormone-disrupting kinds. So what super, super do, important. Yeah, so what can the, the listeners do? Like, What can we do to reduce our exposure to these phthalates? Um, well, it's, it's, it's easier than you might think. Um, and I will start by saying that it's a process. So it's not going to happen overnight, and that's totally okay. We have to cut ourselves some slack and recognize that this is a process. Now, I, I have found that the easiest place to start uh, when it comes to phthalates is with the fragranced products that you're bringing into your home. Uh, so the laundry detergent, the scented candles, air fresheners, perfumes, body lotions, et cetera, and start phasing them out and opting instead for unscented, fragrance-free, and more natural products. Um, and this is a process. So, again, when the bottle runs out, you can buy a new, switch for a new brand that does not have uh, fragrance. So you need to start reading product labels. Um, now, uh, you'll often find the word fragrance or perfume listed towards the bottom of the ingredient list. And this is sort of a catch-all phrase that really can include hundreds of different chemicals that make up the fragrance um, just within that one word. And now there are plenty of products out there that are fragrance-free or that are scented with plant-based essential oils, and these are what you want to be buying instead. And for personal care products, people can go uh, check out the Environmental Working Group Skin Deep database. Not only can they look up the products that they have, but they can look up products that are made without phthalates and other harmful chemicals. So that's really the first place. Um, you know, if you have scented candles, ditch them. If you've got the Glade air fresheners or the, you know, those little diffuser, scent diffuser sticks, ditch all that stuff. It's totally unnecessary, and you're just surrounding yourself uh, with a sort of this cloud of constant stream of phthalate exposures. Yeah, I love EWG. It's uh, Environmental Working Group. They have a website called EWG.com, and they're actually coming up with an app uh, for your smartphone where you can take a photo of a product label in Target or wherever you are and see how it rates on a toxicity scale. So you can just really find out firsthand. So awesome. 
Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So I just love them so much. You can find out firsthand immediately before you purchase it if it's going to be safe to use or not. Yeah. So, yeah, it's amazing. So uh, can you share with us uh, some other places where obesogens you know, might be hiding out in our lives? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, a big one is pesticides found on conventionally grown fruits and vegetables. Um, you know, many of the pesticides that are used on food crops are not only uh, chemicals that sort of are sit in our, our body's fat stores. These are known as lipophilic chemicals. They sort of hang out in our body fat. Um, but also endocrine-disrupting and likely obesogenic chemicals. Um, these pesticides also are carcinogenic and neurotoxic and uh, developmental and reproductive toxins. So by avoiding them, you're also reducing your exposure to chemicals linked to cancer and infertility and birth defects and so on. So there's a plus side there. You know, there's over a billion pounds of pesticides used in the United States each year, and those pesticides, they don't just vanish when they get sprayed on the crop. They end up as residues on our food um, and also in our drinking water. And the solution here is pretty obvious. We eat organically grown foods that don't have the same kinds of pesticide residues and subsequent issues. It's a pretty straight up solution. Now, when organic foods first started showing up at grocery stores way back when, I thought it was just an excuse to charge more, and I really looked at it as like fancy, expensive marketing, this, you know, really posh, expensive for people who had tons of money only thing. Uh, but it became pretty clear that organic was actually healthier. Um, and, you know, my perspective on that entire situation has shifted dramatically. Um, and it's not only healthier because, um, you know, or I should say not healthier because it was uh, more nutritious per se, but rather because it was free of all of the harmful and toxic chemicals that conventional food used. So that's sort of a uh, a sticky point within that argument. A lot of people say, like, organic is not more nutritious. It's like I look at that and say, you know what, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. That's not the point. The point is organic does not have those harmful pesticides, and that's what I'm interested in, in avoiding. I look or at organic food as a necessity. This is, for the most part, a non-negotiable. Um, and I look at it as one of the smartest things that you can do to avoid chemicals in your daily life. This is your food. You're putting it right in your mouth. This is what sustains and nourishes you. It does not make sense if that food is also loaded with dangerous chemicals. I know. I had to make a decision, though. I had to make a decision this morning. I went to go get a latte at a little coffee shop, and I asked for a, you know, a cafe mocha, and they said they only had non-organic milk. So I contemplated for a second. I was like, no, thanks, because I just don't want all those chemicals and hormones yeah. stuff in my body. So I... Yeah, absolutely. I'm my little treat that morning. Yeah, that's it's well good for you. I mean, that's it's a it's a non-negotiable in my book. Yeah. Um, and then the, the final obesogen that I'll share with you, um, and this is probably one that your listeners and really everybody is more familiar with, and that's BPA or bisphenol A. Um, you know, this made news a number of years ago when there was this huge uproar after it was discovered that. This chemical, also a synthetic estrogen and an endocrine-disrupting chemical, was being used in polycarbonate baby bottles. Now, bisphenol A um, was actually developed as a synthetic estrogen. So that's what, that is what its initial purpose was, as a synthetic estrogen back in the late 1890s um, or early 1890s. But it wasn't until the 1920s or the 1930s that it began to be used in commercial products. And its use as an intentional synthetic estrogen was short-lived, didn't really stick around, but it was granted this new life as a plasticizer. So BPA is now one of the most widely and heavily produced chemicals in the world, found in a wide range of products from clear polycarbonate plastics to the lining of canned foods to cash register receipts and even things like dental sealants. Uh, and BPA is also found in the blood of 98% of people tested. And because BPA is everywhere, it's difficult to prevent all exposures, but there are simple measures that you can take at home to significantly reduce your exposures. And the first thing to do is move away from using canned foods. So BPA is used in the epoxy lining of canned foods 
from tomatoes to beer to soup to soda, it's all in there. This is standard within the canning industry. Now, the epoxy lining helps prevent direct food contact with the aluminum, which can easily be dissolved by the contents in the can or which can affect the flavor of food stored in the can. So they put this epoxy lining inside the can. Now, acidic foods like canned tomatoes are sort of the worst offenders. Acidity is one of the things that increases the amount of BPA that migrates out or leaches out of the can lining and into the food itself. So in addition to avoiding as much canned food as possible, and preferably all of it with a few exceptions, which I'll touch on in a second, you also want to be use, mindful of using plastic food storage containers, in particular number seven plastics. You can see that little number seven within the uh, recycling uh, chasing arrows symbol on the bottom of the plastic in many cases. And this can be an indication of the presence of BPA. It's not a guarantee that BPA is in there, but it's a good general uh, guideline. The polycarbonate plastic is the clear hard kind, like Rita filter uh, containers or clear plastic reusable travel cups, like the kind you get at Starbucks, um, uh, Nalgene bottles, and things like that. These are all made with polycarbonate plastic and very likely have BPA in them. Now, instead of canned food, we opt for fresh, that's sort of the obvious choice, or cooking from dried when possible, which I know is tricky, and that's a concession that a lot of people, you know, the canned beans, for example, um, is, a, is a real uh, time saver for a significant percentage of, of people who cook. Now, there is one company that makes a line of canned beans that do not use the standard epoxy lining, but rather an enamel lining that is free of plasticizers, and that is Eden Organics. So, if giving up canned foods is not going to happen or canned beans is not going to happen, then at the very least, um, buy only Eden Organics brand. Uh, Eden Organics also, along with a few other brands, has started selling tomatoes in glass jars instead of cans, which is an excellent alternative to stock your pantry with. And when it comes to plastics, avoid them as much as possible. I just say as a general rule, avoid plastic in the kitchen that has direct contact with your food as much as possible, um, and opt for glass or uh, when it comes to bottles and things like that, stainless steel or glass when you're out and about. Um, they're inexpensive and can be found just about anywhere. Um, and, you know, lastly, I'll just kind of add that we want to make a um, – be mindful of BPA-free plastics. So you'll see lots of uh, products that are advertised as BPA-free. Um, there are several – structurally similar chemicals in the bisphenol family, and bisphenol A is only one of them. So many products that are now BPA-free have simply been swapped uh, for some of those other chemicals, in many cases BPS like Sam or BPS like Frank, um, which frustratingly uh, are apparently even more persistent and potent than BPA. So watch out for BPA-free claims. I know those manufacturers are sneaky. They can say they that are EPA free, but it's still there's it's problematic. Um, so Laura, I have one final question that I ask all my sure. guests. Um, I think it's obvious, but what do you think is the most pressing health issue in our world today? That's a good question, and I think the most pressing issue isn't actually a single thing, and I think my answer will surprise you. Um, but I think it's not really a single thing, but rather a mindset, and that's the mindset of short-sightedness. So people are producing, creating, building, developing, growing things with today and tomorrow in mind and with maximizing profits and minimizing loss, which I understand, but it's happening at the expense of the future. So yeah. if we're you were able to somehow sort of collectively shift our perspective from the short term to the long term, so many of the choices people are making wouldn't be made because they're not sustainable. So this applies to our uh, to health with a, a sort of quick fix prescription drug, quick fix diet mentality, to the way we raise animals for food, the way we grow crops, the way we fish our oceans. It applies to the way that we continue to suck up fossil fuels and natural gas extraction and oil. 
uh, to how we abuse our clean water sources and pollute our air. And of course, it applies to the harmful, untested chemicals that we're sort of willy-nilly using in the manufacture of the things that we use to make our daily lives convenient. So this, to me, seems like the biggest overarching pressing issue because, to me, it really lies at the core of each individual health issue out there. We're way too short-sighted. Yeah, thank you for your perspective on that question. It's, I think it's just such an important topic that we need to be talking about. And, you know, if people listening out there want to learn more about the work that you do and, you know, learn more about obesogens, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, there are a few ways. Um, as I said in the beginning, my practice is primarily focused on educating health and wellness practitioners. So if that happens to be you and you're listening, um, if you happen to be a health coach or a nurse or an acupuncturist or anybody who's working with clients around health and wellness, then I certainly want to invite you to check out the courses that I teach. Um, and you can do that by going to Laura Adler, that's L-A-R-A-A-D-L-E-R, lauraadler.com forward slash coaches. Um, I have a, a whole website dedicated to you. Um, and in fact, I actually have a three-month three month course on environmental toxins uh, in the home that's starting later this month on August 27th, that's uh, a little less than two weeks, called Blueprint for a Healthy Life. And if you're interested in checking out that, you can find details at lauraadler.com forward slash coaches forward slash blueprint. Uh, if you're a parent or planning on becoming a parent, then looking at chemical toxins in your home is really super essential. Forget baby-proofing. We want to look at uh, chemicals. Obviously, we don't want to forget baby-proofing, but we want to do them both. And the best time to actually do this is before you get pregnant. Uh, chemicals are being implicated in rising rates of so many childhood diseases, leukemias, allergies, asthma, autism, you name it. And for parents, I offer customized one-on-one -on -one support to really help people clear out as many of these dangers within their home as possible. And if, that, if you're a parent and you, your interest is peaked here and you want to learn more about that, then you can go to laraadler.com forward slash parents. If you are neither, and I'm sure that there are many people out there that are neither one of those, and you still want to learn more about chemical toxins, follow me on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is where I share the most current news as it's being released about environmental toxins and health, um, and I share products that I love. So it's a great way to stay connected and still sort of get a steady stream of information about this topic. And uh, my Twitter handle is at Laura Adler. So it's pretty easy to remember. Um, and if you happen to be on Pinterest, I recently have dove into the Pinterest world um, and set up uh, a number of boards with all kinds of great stuff there. And you can find me at Pinterest.com forward slash Laura Adler. Yeah, I know. I bought your kitchen detox program to use with my clients. You know, I'm a health coach. And I've gotten right. such a good response with it so far. It's just made it so easy to walk my clients through how to detox their kitchen because people have so many questions. What should I be using? Is cast iron safe? Can I use plastic utensils? So it really takes a lot of the guesswork out of figuring out what is the, the best products to use in storage containers and cooking equipment and whatnot. And I think that anyone could use that, and not just health coaches, but I think it's a great tool for just anyone to purchase to learn how to detox or kitchen, it was really good. Yeah, and so if anybody is interested in checking that out, obviously it's geared towards um, health and wellness practitioners. But you know, it's, if if you're really hooked on the topic and you really want to know what to clear out of your kitchen, you know, feel free to check that out as well. Um, and you can find that on the coaches side of my website by going to um, work with me, and then under products. Um, and you will see the Ultimate Non-Toxic Makeover Kitchen Edition. Um, and that is what Wendy is talking about. Well, Laura, thank you so much for being on the show. And thank You're you so for bringing attention. Yeah, thank you for being a, bringing attention to this very important topic. And, you know, the work you're doing is truly helping health professionals get the word out to their clients, you know, and their patients about the dangers of chemicals and toxins in our food and where they're looking in our kitchen. And thank you for doing this important work. Well, you're very welcome. You know, I, I, 
the fact that it's not being addressed out there in, in a bigger capacity is really what sort of fuels me because I think this is such an important piece of the conversation that we're not having around health and wellness. And, uh, you know, there really isn't a lot of resources to help people navigate the what do I do questions, the what now questions, once they learn about it. So they can go to something like Environmental Working Group and learn about all the issues, but people at the end of the day often feel a little bit lost as to what do we do when I get home. And yeah. so, you know, that is that, you know, that is sort of the, the problem that I that I aim to solve. And, and uh, you know, I, I love this work. I think it's really fascinating and important. Um, and so I'm, I'm very happy to to share uh, some really good information and important information with your audience. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Laura. And I would You're love to welcome. have you. I'd love to have you on the show again some point in the future to talk about whatever yeah. you want to talk about because I think you're you're a wonderful speaker and presenter and you just laid that out so simply and easily for I think people are going to get a lot out of that. So Great. Thank you. Yeah, and you know, definitely keep me posted of of you know what people what people are saying because I serve the people. I serve yeah. the people. <laughs> Well, thank you. And thank you to all the listeners out there for tuning in to the Live to 110 podcast. Please go leave a review on iTunes if you enjoyed what you heard today. And thank you so much for listening. That's all for today.